If aliens were going to be attracted to Earth by listening to us, you couldn't do any better than Karen Carpenter's voice, could you? But calling them hasn't worked so far. Or has it? Why are key Republicans resisting transparency on UFOs? asks the website The Hill in the United States. If there's nothing to hide regarding UAVs, UAPs, UFOs, whatever we call them now, even if sightings can't all be explained, why not open the books? Media are full of UFO stories right now. There are good features on the NPR site, the Washington Post, and in Rolling Stone magazine online. Rolling Stone reckons there may well be aliens, but they may well not care about us. And looking at the state of the world, who could blame them? Our next guest, who's touring here at the end of the summer as the Royal New Zealand Astronomical Society's 2024 Beatrice Hill Tinsley Lecturer, has a new book forthcoming called Alien Worlds. She thinks we're getting better now at finding the planets where life like ours could flourish and may well have flourished. Professor Lisa Kaltenegger thinks there could be dinosaurs on these worlds, some of them as well. Lisa's Austrian. She's with the Department of Astronomy at Cornell University in New York State, and she's the director of the Carl Sagan Institute, founded to find life in the the universe and named after the famous astronomer at Cornell, the man who once said if the dinosaurs had had a space program, they would not be extinct. So Lisa's won top awards for innovation in science and physics. She's been named a role model for women in science by the European Commission and one of America's young innovators. She features in the IMAX movie Search for Life in Space. Asteroid 7734, Kaltenegger, is named after her. She's perhaps the world's leading expert in the modelling of potential habitable worlds for humans. And her work includes advising NASA and America's National Science Foundation. Lisa, good morning. Thanks for being able to join us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Are we alone in the universe, scientifically rather than intuitively? What are the odds, do you think? Well, I love that question. This is basically exactly what I do. I could give you an estimate, but it would just be something that's completely non-based on knowledge. And we know that one in five stars, so when you go out at night, and hopefully on a beautiful New Zealand night, you'll see a lot of stars, count to five. One out of five stars has a planet just the right distance, just the right size, that it could potentially be like our own Earth. And we don't know if it is, but our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, has 200 billion stars. So I would say the odds are in our favor. (laughs) You know, you got me excited when you said the one in five. (laughs) That's fantastic. Uh, In terms of them... If they're there visiting us, the consensus, I think, is shifting away from UAVs being in the minds of crackpots, uh, almost to acceptance of the probability that they are from off-world. But, Lisa, do you get the feeling that there's also a lot of wishful thinking and media encouragement going on here regarding aliens? I think, let's assume for a minute, that the universe is teeming with life. And then... Let's assume it's still going to be like expensive and tricky and time consuming to get to another planet. Then the question for me is, well, which planet would I pick? The Earth might not be as interesting yet because we just got boots on the moon. We don't have boots on uh, Mars yet, not even our next over planet. So if you had to pick, 
would you really pick us? Yet, I wouldn't choose us. I would choose, you know, a 5,000 year older civilization trying to learn something from them if they're out there. It would give us like a very good positive feeling for our future if there's still somebody there 5,000 years or 500 million years from now. We're like, okay, we have a big chance to make it. What I think we do, because I'm really uh, an optimist in this. And of course, you know, you're at this beautiful, beautiful place in New Zealand and you're taking our environment really serious. And that's what we need to protect our beautiful spacecraft Earth. That's kind of a huge spacecraft. The biosphere is our life support system. We need to protect that and if we do we have a chance to make it to the future i can't go into everything you do in terms of the technical gear you've got but it's not just hopefully scanning the heavens i was reading you've got a computer at cornell that looks at how microorganisms reflect a broad spectrum of light for instance how does that kind of tech help your work Oh, absolutely. We have more than a computer, actually. So we actually go, we scoop up the stuff, we put it in the lab. And this is the royal way because I have amazing people who can do this for me that have to be microbiologists who are interested in trying to find life in the universe. And then we grow it. And then when we have a batch of growing microbes, so think about algae, for example, or I think about any of the hot um uh, the, the hot springs in New Zealand. There's this amazing hot spring a project in New Zealand where they try to figure out what microbes could live in all these hot springs in New Zealand. And so think about a very diverse kind of life that's around us. Some is green, some is red, some is orange, some is yellow. So how could you actually spot that in your telescope? That's our question. And so what we do after we grew them in the lab, in my bio lab, I'm very bad at growing this. So I <laughs> have other people grow this because I kill <laughs> even microbes. And so we then take it over to another lab where we look at it and see what of the light it reflects, right? The colors, the different colors, basically to say it reflects different light. And then we take that information from a spectrograph that basically looks at all the different colors of light and tells us what gets reflected and what doesn't. And then we take that information and say, so what would a telescope see if there's not green plants and, you know, no trees and grass on this planet? But what about if it were a planet of lots of hot springs? Or what if it was a planet that was an ocean world covered with algae? How could we not miss signs of life? And so we go from one lab to the other lab and then feed all of this in the computer to make sure that once we point our telescopes at these amazing worlds that we have now discovered, we won't miss signs of life if they are there. We're going to talk with you, I think, a bit more about this uh, when you come down and talk about to New Zealand and talk about your book, Alien Earths, next year. This is exciting. Okay, just getting back to what you were saying earlier, 40 billion potentially habitable planets uh, just in our galaxy. Lisa, in the planets we've scanned over the last 30 years or so, how many look habitable and what does habitable look like? That's a great question. So, of course, what we have with the 40 billion that you got from my 200 billion and one in five, good job. <laughs> all good job to all the <laughs> listeners who did the math too. We know about 35 planets that are just at the right distance from their stars. So it's not too hot, not too cold. And they are small enough. They could be a rock like the Earth. But that number tells us that with the 
really hard measurements we need to make and the telescopes that are just not big enough yet to find all these Earths, that there must be these billions of other rocky planets at the right distance out there for us to have caught 35. And the second question that you ask also, great, what does it mean? Because now they're at the right distance, not too hot and not too cold. So what that really means, and they are small rocks, so not huge gaseous atmosphere like on Jupiter or on Saturn. So what that means is that you have the pre-requests. You have a rock in space that gets just the right amount of heat from its star. That water could be liquid on the surface. And on the Earth, we know that all life that we know of needs liquid water to strive, to exist, to evolve. Then we say, okay, these are our best bets. And then one is as habitable or as unhabitable as another until we can point our telescopes at it and figure out what's in the air because each planet has a kind of light fingerprint that tells you what its ear is made out of. And with the James Webb Space Telescope, for the first time, we have a big enough telescope to catch that light from these small planets. When you discern that light or a diminution of that light through your telescopes, what are you looking for most? So we're looking for gases that are produced by life that we cannot explain other than for life with that we cannot explain other than with light. So that's the combination of oxygen with a reducing gas or ozone with a reducing gas like methane. And the reason is that something could produce methane that's not life. So methane alone is not a signature. And also you could split water or you could split CO2 and get quite a bit of oxygen. But if oxygen and methane are at the same time in your air, then they react very fast to CO2 and water. So when you see them together in an atmosphere, that tells you that both are being produced right now in big amounts. And that combination is what basically lets us interfere that there has to be life on this other world. And there's a caveat on this, that this only started to happen, again, we're looking at our own Earth and its history as our template, as our information. This only started to happen about 2 billion years ago when there was the great oxidation event, when biota started to produce oxygen, really kind of as an accident, as a byproduct, and then other biota used the energy that the oxygen contained to grow bigger and more complex. But before that, there was still life on the Earth, but it produced CO2 or methane. And that you can also get out, for example, from volcanoes. And so the key here is that a lot of things will look interesting, but there will only be a subset of those that we will not be able to explain with anything else than life. So this is what we now catch with these big telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope that we just launched uh, Christmas 21. And for the first time ever, it gives us information about these worlds that we cannot reach because unfortunately, I can't give you a wormhole. Even so, it'd be so cool to actually make one of those too. <laughs> so if we're going to have trouble getting to all these alien Earths because of the problems traveling, and I don't need to go into all those. But I was thinking that aliens probably 
never came here given that and wouldn't come here in spacecraft, it would take too long for them without using wormholes or tunnels in space. So they might be appearing uh, using whatever version of Zoom or Skype we'll be using in the future, like Mark Zuckerberg's idea of meta. You know, you get invited to a party and I don't need to go to New York State to mix and mingle with your friends. Our avatars do that. If aliens were appearing on Earth, they probably wouldn't come across in spacecraft like we assume. I think you catching your I think you're touching on something really interesting here, right? That of course every contact that we envision is by definition limited by what the technology we have, the technology we can imagine. And I'm completely with you on that. There's probably other means of contact or other means of travel or other means of just saying hello to someone that we haven't come across yet because we're just not at that evolution yet. That once we're there, we're like, oh, of course they used this. You know, they didn't <laughs> come with their spaceships and be like dots on the sky that we mistook for, for some UFOs or something. Uh, I agree with you. I think it's much more likely because I sometimes think about this too. It's like, for example, when we uh, say we're listening for radio signals and we haven't heard any, and it, does that mean there's nothing out there? Well, you know, we used radios, like real radios, a while ago, and now we usually stream music. We use Bluetooth. We use the internet, right? So our technology is changing so fast that if you just envision what it could be in the future, you know, that's going to go so much further than meta even. Uh, I think we may be just not there yet. Yeah. Uh, we can't envision yet what they would be using if they were trying to contact us in the first place. So the James Webb Space T Telescope lets us investigate the atmospheres of small rocky exoplanets. So, Lisa, we are right now on the cusp of great discoveries to be mentioned in the history books in a thousand years' time, aren't we? Will we live to see these discoveries, most of us listening? Well, I have to say I'm doing my utter best to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing, as you just mentioned with the James Webb Space Telescope, is you need the light. You need to catch those photons to do the work, the analysis to figure out if there's life on another world. And... Uh, a telescope is kind of like a bucket in the rain. The bigger you can make it, the more rain it will have caught in one downpour. And so this is why the size of the James Webb Space Telescope is our key to being able to now do this for small Earth-like planets, because it's just for the first time ever big enough. It gives us a big enough tool to investigate the first of these rocky worlds. And, you know, we could get lucky or it could take some time. Catching the cosmic rain. I love that. Can I get to the dinosaurs? Why do you think they could be living on a planet somewhere? I was saying before that our Earth is one case, right? One case of a habitable world. And one case is always bad because you're extrapolating from one possibility. But it has really been lots of different worlds in a way because the air has changed and the life on it, of course, has changed through its history so far. 4.5 billion years of history, about 4 or 3.8 billion years of life. So there's been a lot of change. Somewhere between 300 and 200 million years ago, there was a peak in the amount of oxygen in the air on our planet that allowed for these huge creatures like dinosaurs because they needed more oxygen. And so 
when you take that and when you know that what you're looking for is oxygen with methane, we said, well, let's have a look if actually the light fingerprint of that time would be easier to spot. So life would be easier to spot. And it actually turns out it is. And that is such a great combination because who doesn't love dinosaurs <laughs> and who doesn't love search for life in the universe? And so what we figured out is that a, a place or a world that could enable things like dinosaurs would actually be easier to spot. And ever since we've done this work, I'm now thinking about space dinosaurs for real. And then the question is like, well, why can't you just look for 40, 50% of oxygen? Their physics gets you because at about 35% of oxygen, you cannot extinguish flames anymore. Things will just burn, burn, burn. Mm. So it turns out that while the dinosaurs lived, so I said like 300 to 200 million years ago, it was at a sweet spot at about between 30 and 35% of oxygen. So the highest you should be able to get before you have fires that dist extinguish your whole world, basically. It'd be dangerous, dangerous for us now with even 30% oxygen rather than 20% in terms of combustibility, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think we would be uh, probably much differently evolved or different. We, we would be much more careful. Instead of dinosaurs, we could encounter giant slurping sponges, couldn't we? I mean, because uh, not many of our Earth's creatures are vertebrates. Uh, we don't fully know what great monsters might be lurking in that methane oxygen world. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you have a lot of sci-fi plots right there. <laughs> and the interesting thing is also that kind of, I, I think the sci-fi plots that I just mentioned, and I love sci-fi, so not even a question. I also think sometimes that they inform our vision of what we might encounter, yeah. because it is as likely possible that they are very, uh, you know, peaceful uh, civilizations out there, if you survive for in the long run, you probably have to figure out how to live in peace with every other species on your planet. That is going to be so interesting. And it comes back to what you said, there could be giant sponges that are peacefully mumbling something that we don't understand, right? So there is such an opportunity of a diversity and a fun and exciting diversity out there. Or probably some scaries are not scary, and maybe some of the scary comes from us not understanding what we're seeing. And that applies to our own planet. Um, <laughs> Professor Lisa. I would agree to that. <laughs> Professor Lisa Kaltenegger is with us, the director of the Carl Sagan Institute with the Department of Astronomy at Cornell University in New York State. When I was reading about you for this chat, I came across a Stephen Hawking quote, and he said the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies. I suppose we like to think we're more special than that, but we may not be. I would take that comment much more positively. And I, of course, go a little bit after what Carl Sagan said and how he described our beautiful pale blue dot. <laughs> if you haven't seen that quote, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you should look it up. It's gorgeous. It describes 
our planet as a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. That was the image that they took with the Voyager mission for the last time when it turned back to take a picture of our planet and it saw this tiny dot that's everything we are. And it tells you or it shows you how beautiful yet fragile our planet is and how much we have to take care of it. But if you go and you just unravel Stephen Hawking's comment, right? It is actually great that we are a hopefully very normal planet around what we know is a very normal star. Because I'd rather be, you know, I think for me, I don't want to be special and alone. I'd rather be a little bit more common, but have a lot of friends to talk to. <laughs> that Voyager picture of a distant Earth it is beautiful. It's also eerie. I've seen that, and it actually resonated more with me than those pictures of Earth from the moon, which people prefer. Something stirred deeply inside me when I looked at that picture from way out in space of us. I'm completely with you on that. I think the first time I saw this tiny dot, just this tiny dot, nothing else, the black canvas of space, gorgeous, of course, but this dot, that's us, that's here. And Carl Sagan phrased it beautifully. Everybody you've ever known, everybody who's ever loved or lived on this dot. And how come, this is now paraphrasing, that, you know, we have all these wars trying for a little time to be like the temporary uh emperor, if you want, of a tiny part of that dot. Why are we not all together in this, trying to steer our ship? And I think this dot, as you said, seeing it, uh, seeing it on the canvas, on the huge, vast, black, dark canvas of space, this tiny, bright, Bailpru dot, our home, for me too. It changed how I view the earth and how I view my responsibility to take care of it. Nice. A couple of closing questions. Despite the seeming impossibility right now of our being able to go to space on long voyages, do you nevertheless think it's our destiny? You must have thought about this. In about half a billion years, so 500 million years, it will just, due to the increasing luminosity of the sun, get hot enough on our planet that the oceans will start to evaporate, so we'll start to boil. And so is it our destinies to travel the stars? If you take the long view on humankind, absolutely. And there's a beautiful quote uh, from another Russian scientist that said that the earth is the cradle of humankind, but kids don't stay in the cradle forever. At one point, we have to take our step out of the cradle and into our cosmic home. A good answer. And a last question, because it's, people still think a lot about the possibilities of UFOs and aliens. When you, with your scientific bent and brain, hear about strange incidents like the mysterious swarm of objects that harassed Navy ships off the coast of California back in 2019, and we've had our own aerial mysteries in New Zealand, when you hear about these, what do you think? I think, ooh, interesting. And I think, oh, I wish it's aliens because then I don't have to do it the hard way, right? Going planet <laughs> by planet, star by star. This is a lot of hard work. But the scientific method, the way that we are trained to look at data, 
we have to find something that cannot be explained otherwise. And if you just think about, I don't know, the movement of a school of fish, right? It seems to be undirected, but there's a reason behind it. The movement of a huge flock of birds, you know, you're just like, oh my God, they have a pattern. Why do they do that? There's all reason behind that. You can explain that. You could also say, oh, it's magic, right? Or you could say, oh, it's UFOs or oh, it's aliens. But unfortunately, as a scientist, I don't get to stick with my first, oh, please let it be aliens. <laughs> I have to actually go through the data. So I'm always curious, but I have to say I've been disappointed a lot. So again, the scientific method makes you still keep going and try it again and again. And I hope I'm proven wrong at one point and one of these things actually turn out to be aliens. But about the discussion we had before, it is huge distances in the galaxy between the stars. And you would have to have a good reason to get somewhere. And so would you really fly here yet? I know. The Blacks, Black Friday sales aren't enough of an enticement. <laughs> that, that is such a great idea. And so why you said Black Friday sales. And then another time that somebody was really funny said like, oh, they want us as slaves. So I'm like, seriously, have you seen a robot? And have you seen me? Seriously, I take the robot anytime because <laughs> I need all this maintenance. And, you know, I'm not very good at stuff. So if you can fly from star to star interstellar travel with your spaceship, you probably don't need me to be your slave. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. We'll be looking forward to talking to you again next year on your book tour. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so looking forward to coming and seeing lots of you and being able to see this gorgeous country of yours and go around and talk about my book and talk about the search for life. Thank you.